0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing Xi Jinping's foreign policy ambitions and how China's power is reshaping the world. Under Xi Jinping, China has pushed to significantly expand its diplomatic, economic, military and technological power across the globe. This has led to enduring debates about the nature and extent of China's global ambitions, and in Washington, it has increasingly led to concerns that China seeks to replace the United States as the world's preeminent power. What exactly is China's vision for the world, and how is Beijing striving to achieve that vision? How successful has China been in pursuing its goals so far, and will it ultimately succeed in realizing its long-term objectives? To explore these big questions, we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth Economy, the author of a new book titled The World According to China. In it, she argues that China is pursuing an ambitious new strategy to reclaim the country's past glory, and Xi Jinping's vision is one of Chinese centrality on the global stage. Dr. Economy is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she previously served as a CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies for over a decade. She is currently on leave serving as a Senior Advisor for China in the Department of Commerce for the Biden administration. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here with you, Bonnie. So let me start off by asking you to share your motivation for writing your book that just came out, The World According to China. So, how does your new book fit into the larger conversations and debates about China that are already ongoing in Washington and beyond? Great. So, why did I decide to write
1: the book? You know, the idea came to me in some respects because of what was taking place in the United States. Namely, we had the Trump administration, President Trump, uh, begin to uh, withdraw the United States from a number of uh, international uh, institutions and arrangements like the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal. And a narrative began to develop, I think, in much of the international community that China would be the country to replace the United States. And uh, certainly, China had already demonstrated capability to propose new institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or the Belt and Road Initiative. But also, you had Xi Jinping out there delivering you know, major international addresses talking about China's leadership on globalization or on climate change. And so I began to think, you know, could China, in fact, uh, replace the United States as sort of the leading global power? And if it did do it, what would that look like? You know, what did China actually want? Uh, And so that really led me to, to ask three questions. You know, first, What does Xi Jinping, what does China want? How is it going about trying to get what it wants? And is it likely to succeed? I think in terms of how this fits into the broader discussion about China and the global stage and broader debates in the United States, I think there are still debates on all those issues that I just mentioned, despite the fact that uh, I think, from the outside, it looks like there 's an enormous amount of consensus in Washington around China and around China policy. Uh, I think, as you certainly know, there are many debates, many different perspectives on you know what uh, Xi Jinping 's real ambitions are, you know how it 's trying to get there, and you know is it going to succeed? So I, I view this as sort of one effort to try to first basically answer those questions for myself. But in the process, hopefully uh, bring some clarity for other people as well who are trying to understand what it is that
0: Xi Jinping is trying to do. Thank you, Liz. I wanted to follow up on the three questions you mentioned that the book addresses. The first question you mentioned is, what does China and what does Xi Jinping want? From your perspective, what do you see as Xi's vision for China? So, I think, in terms of what I think that Xi Jinping
1: wants that that is a lot of the book. So, trying to condense that, let me try to condense that. I think uh, Xi Jinping has a transformative vision first of all, it's not about reforming the international system around the margins. It really is about transforming uh, sort of both China's role in the global stage and in some respects, the global stage itself and you know i'll just tick off the areas in which i think that sort of the dimensions that i think this is most germane so first you know china is trying to redraw the very geography of its own country and the asia pacific right by moving from staking claims around sovereignty to realizing them and that has to do with you know hong kong and taiwan and the south china sea but even more broadly i think we've seen you know China be pretty assertive uh, just over the past year and a half of the COVID pandemic, you know, and the border dispute with India or around the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands with Japan or even in territorial waters near Malaysia and Indonesia. So a sense that, you know, China wants to reclaim what it believes is its sovereign territory and Xi Jinping is making progress on that. I think second, Xi's ambition is to be the leading power in the Asia-Pacific. And we can talk about how he's going about doing that, but I think that's his second ambition. I think third is moving to ensure that Chinese values and policy preferences are embedded in the policies and preferences of other countries. And I think largely we see Xi doing this through the Belt and Road Initiative where you know yes it began as a hard infrastructure project in 2013 you know infrastructure connectivity through ports and railroads and highways connecting sort of lesser developed regions of China to you know external markets you know through the rest of Asia and Middle East and Europe and Africa so that was all the initial inception uh, but certainly it's morphed, right? There's a digital silk road that's fiber optic cables and e-commerce and satellite system. There's a health silk road. There's a polar silk road. There are political objectives where China you know, will come in and Chinese officials will help train countries on how to do real-time censorship of the Internet if they're interested. And certainly there's a new security component with China's establishment of its first military logistics base in Djibouti. Uh, And I think there are clearly going to be more bases to come. China's made that clear in Cambodia, probably something in the Middle East. So I think these things are, you know, this is a transformative vision and very different from what has come before. I think the third dimension or actually the fourth dimension is rethinking sort of the relationship between China's economy and the global economy. So, how can Xi Jinping, in many respects, insulate the Chinese economy within the context of still being an economic power in a globalized economy? and I think through policies like made in China twenty twenty five which basically say that you know China should dominate in the manufacturing of uh, components for ten critical cutting edge areas of technology, or through its Xi 's announcement of a dual circulation policy, which says you know, China can largely innovate, manufacture, and consume within its own economy, still engage with the international economy, import selective, you know, know know-how and capital and technology, and and certainly export to the rest of the world. But by and large, really develop a much more self-sufficient conception of uh, the Chinese economy. I think that's sort of the fourth dimension of Xi's ambition. Uh, And then fifth is what she began talking about in 2014, which is, you know, leading in the reform of the global governance system. And, you know, this is sort of the issue that I think many people ignored for a very long time. It's, you know in our field, sort of international regimes and institutions have never been like the sexy topic for the most part. But I think Xi Jinping has made them, made them much more interesting to people. Uh, and maybe Donald Trump too, you know, in all of his, his you know, sort of rejection of them made them more interesting. But I think um, Xi's interest in transforming norms and values in international institutions so that they align more with those of China is also a really significant thrust of his policy and i think it's you know true in areas certainly like human rights and internet governance but i also think we can see you know that he's trying to have china play a much larger role in areas like the arctic right or in maritime governance or in space areas that china considers to be areas where there's still room to develop the rules of the road and china can play a larger uh, role in this
0: space Your discussion of China's and Xi's ambition reminds me of another recent excellent book on China, and that's Rush Dolce's book, The Long Game, China's Grand Strategy to Displace American Order. His book highlights the grand ambitions that successive Chinese leaders have had, and China's evolving grand strategy. What are some of the ways your book or argument differs from Rush's? So I think
1: that's kind of the ambition that I sketch out that I see as important for she. In terms of how my argument differs from that of, uh, for example, of Rush, I think probably the, the biggest difference, I mean, I think I talk about some areas that are different that, than he does in the book, some topics that are a little bit different. Um, I think he has more of a security, overall security thrust than I do. I think the biggest difference is probably... Uh, the importance that I place on Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's leadership and his speeches and his voice and his views. I think in the context of Russia's book, there's the sense that develops is that there's a, a long continuity, right? That this is structurally driven, that this is not about any one individual leader. Yes, leader is important, but by and large, this is what we should anticipate coming from China, in the past and in the future. Many of the ideas that she is now bringing to life are ideas that have been present in China before. I think for me that is all certainly true, but I was trained as somebody who believed that leadership matters and I was trained as as an expert on the Soviet Union and my first job was following uh, Gorbachev in the US government for uh, two years. And so, and I came into that position basically when he came to power. And so, for me, I can look and think, yeah, actually, a leader can really make a big difference. And I personally think that Xi Jinping is that kind of leader that makes a big difference, even though there were ideas that sort of floated around, for example, that were similar to the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, look, Jiang Zemin's, you know, go out strategy, Zhu Rongji and Jiang Zemin's go out strategy in 1999 is kind of a precursor in some respects to the Belt and Road. Belt and Road is more about connectivity rather than simply telling companies to, Chinese companies to go out and exploit resources from other countries in order to fuel China's economic growth. But some of that was there. And and the debates around something like a Belt and Road, the discussions, the policy ideas were all there. The policy ideas for an Asian infrastructure investment bank in one form or another existed before Xi Jinping. But ideas exist in all countries around different kinds of issues, right? So there are all these ideas, right? It takes a certain leader to transform, to choose those particular ideas and transform them into policy. And it took Xi Jinping, for example, just to use a very different kind of example, to say, I don't want all this foreign influence inside China. I don't want all these foreign ideas coming into China. I'm going to pass this foreign non-governmental organization law that in the end took the number of foreign NGOs operating in China from over 7,000 to something like 400. Okay, so that was... Xi Jinping, you know, you can look back and track discussions and debates about the role of foreign NGOs and indeed NGOs in China for well over a couple of decades and see that there are all sorts of ideas floating around, right? From empowering NGOs in China to constraining them. So those policies are always, those ideas are there. It really depends on the leader to
0: choose which ideas are the ones that are going to to come to fruition. It sounds like what you're also saying is that Xi, in many ways, because he's so transformative and because he has this larger vision for China, is much more risk-taking and much bolder than some of his predecessors. Could you talk a bit more on what you see as making Xi unique in the efforts or initiatives that he has pushed forward? yeah, I mean, I think he certainly his I think his you're exactly right.
1: His risk-taking profile is much higher than than previous Chinese leaders. I, I think he is someone who is willing to endure significant disequilibrium in order to achieve, you know an ultimate objective. I think you can see that in the way that he approached Hong Kong, right? So he I mean, basically just suffocated every bit of democracy, right, out of Hong Kong. In a pretty short period of time, you know, a lot of people in the international community thought he would never do that because of the economic ramifications, completely misread his willingness to tolerate opprobrium from the international community for doing anything like that. And the priority that I think he places on sovereignty. I mean, I think that's important to recognize that that issue of sovereignty is so paramount for him, right, that he is willing to tolerate a lot of sort of destabilization in the system. I think we see that with the South China Sea. We saw that with the border dispute with India. I think it's something we have to think about with regard to Taiwan is how much... Is he willing to risk in terms of international backlash to accomplish what he ultimately wants? Look at his wolf warrior diplomacy. I mean, you've never seen a Chinese leader's ranking so low globally, probably since Tiananmen in 1989, than Xi Jinping, right? I mean, you know, bottom of the barrel globally in terms of trust in Xi Jinping and desire to have China lead uh, globally. So... For him, it's clear that he's willing to put all of that at risk, even as he talks about wanting China to have a reputation that's, you know, credible and lovable or whatever else he said. And um, He's willing to put all of that at risk for whatever he believes is the ultimate objective. So I, I do see him as a much greater risk taker than, than previous Chinese
0: leaders. So, what does this mean in terms of U.S.-China relations, and how he thinks about the U.S.-China relationship? At least from my sense of what's going on, it seems that she sees a number of threats, both internally and externally, to be supported by or indirectly linked to the United States. What is your sense? Does he view China as being able to work with the United States, or does he see the two as destined for competition, if not conflict?
1: I mean, I think what we've seen, you know, over the past decade, since he came to power uh, at the end of 2012, are, you know, different voices come out, different threads of his thinking, I think, depending on the moment, depending on the time. I mean, I think he hopes, you know, for cooperation with the United States, but it's got to be cooperation on Xi Jinping's terms, right? And so I think it's, you know, we we don't want to mistake the sort of the contentiousness in the relationship because the United States is much more vocal about it, you know, certainly beginning with the Trump administration, but even continuing into the current administration, a willingness to say overtly, yes, we're going to compete. Yes, we're going to push back. Because the U.S. is more willing to just sort of state it doesn't mean that China isn't behaving that way, right? So that, that in fact, you know, Xi Jinping basically does what Xi Jinping wants to do, whatever the consequences may be. So I I think, you know, he can talk about cooperation, but it's, again, a cooperation that means that the United States needs to uh, accede, right, to China's sovereignty claims, that you can't have the general manager of the Houston Rockets say, fight for freedom, you know, stand with Hong Kong, you know, to tweet that and not expect to be punished economically. So there are a whole range of consequences that China is willing to enforce on other actors and on other countries when they don't do what China wants. And, it's, and I think just to, to finish this point, I think it's important to recognize, you know, this is often framed as a U.S.-China issue, but it's not. I mean, look at what China has done with Germany, right? With Merrick's, with putting sanctions on individual German parliamentarians. Look what China's done with the boycott against Australia. I mean, this is a much broader sort of set of behaviors emanating from China than just China and the United States. Thank you.
0: When you were discussing Xi's transformative vision, you assessed that he had five different goals for China. This includes redrawing China and Asia's geography, making China into a leading power in the Asia-Pacific, rethinking China's relationship with the global economy, making China more economically self-sufficient, and leading reform of the global governance system to ensure that Chinese values and preferences are embedded. So across these five areas, do you think China is succeeding in achieving its long-term goals? And in what areas do you see more Chinese success? In what areas do you see China as falling short of its goals? So I think China has achieved success in
1: all the dimensions that I listed up to a point. And I think you can see that, you know, look, out of its core sovereignty priorities, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South China Sea, it has completely now incorporated Hong Kong to make it just another Chinese city. There's no more one country, two systems, that's non-existent. It has uh, made progress, you know, it, it's created and militarized Seven artificials Features in the South China Sea. Its military has only become more robust and its Navy is now the largest in the world. So uh, it's made progress, I think, in asserting its claims. It's ignored the ruling of the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration, uh, The Hague, that said that its claims were not uh, within international law. So it's it's doing what it wants in the South China Sea. Uh, It has not made progress, I would say, with regard to Taiwan, really. Yes, it's bought off a few more of Taiwan's diplomatic allies, but it's a good example of where Xi Jinping's pressure, where Chinese pressure has caused a backlash that I believe makes it more difficult for Xi Jinping to realize his objectives, right? So what Xi Jinping has done in the South China Sea, what he's done with Taiwan has caused You know, Australia and Japan now to step up and say that Taiwan's security is linked to their own. That's the first time in history that they've done that. I mean, and that's the result of China's behavior, right? So we now have AUKUS, and so instead, you know, China has called for the dissolution of the U.S.-led alliance system. It says the systems, you know, are anachronistic and anti-China. And instead, you have an entirely new defense pact with the U.K. and Australia and the United States that's come about just last year, again, as a result of China's behavior. So I think, you know, again, if you look at all those dimensions, I think what you'll find is that there's been progress, but that the international community, that China's pushed too hard. And now you've got resistance and you're getting a coalescence of opposition that's being established to thwart Xi Jinping's realization, his ultimate realization of his objectives. You know, one of the things that I found, for example, is, you know, we tend to assume that when Xi Jinping says something like, we're, you know, we're going to have a thousand Confucius Institutes, or we've got this huge Belt and Road Initiative and this transformative thing, we kind of just accept that that's what's going to happen. Right? The media report on the initiative, and then you get a few years where there's a lot of attention paid and 90% of it's positive. Right? This is everything that China's doing and it's succeeding, and there, yes, there are these negative implications, but by and large, China is succeeding in what it wants. But very few efforts are made then to look and say, okay, let's let's do an assessment of what this actually looks like now. And so, you know, for example, I found that, yes, China said it wanted to have a thousand Confucius Institutes by 2020 and it had 542. OK, so what does that tell us about China's ambitions? It tells us, yes, you remember, there's this enormous proliferation of Confucius Institutes globally. And then all of a sudden, the United States and Sweden and Canada and a number of democracies concerns began to emerge. Concerns about the fact that the contracts with universities were not transparent, concerns that China was choosing the teachers and the curriculum, an agreement that a university would have with no other external actor. So all of these things then happen that cause, I think, other countries and international actors to, the alarm bells are sounded at some point, and then you get this kind of pushback against the way that China's doing business. I guess the last, you know, I'll make two quick points on this. I think if you look at in terms of what China's been doing to sort of develop this more self-sufficient economy and it's, you know, push on indigenous innovation, I think one of the impacts of that, one of the results has been that countries now look and it's very difficult to, to say what Chinese company is private and what Chinese company is not right? And that there's no trust anymore in the international community, or in many cases in the international community, that a Chinese company can truly be a private actor. And that has hindered some companies like Huawei, even though it's had enormous success, has also hindered it, you know, as it's tried to move forward. And so I think that's another example of where, yes, there's been incredible success, but also where China pushes so hard that it causes a reaction back against what it's trying to accomplish. And the final point I'll make in, in terms of the global governance institutions is that China's had significant success in placing its own officials in leadership positions at, at one point, like two years ago. It had four of the top positions among 15 major UN agencies and programs. But the, the fact that some of these officials uh, would use their positions to advance sort of a narrower set of Chinese agenda items Meant that you have now gotten a situation where a number of countries are looking to ensure that China doesn't get more leadership positions. And so I just I think again that initially there can be a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for Chinese initiatives for a variety of reasons. As they begin to play out, they seem to to raise many more concerns and ultimately you know, cause uh, some backlash. Let me just exclude the whole sovereignty issue from the part about uh, enthusiasm by other actors though.
0: I really like your example of China's goals for Confucius Institutes for 2020 and how the number of institutes China was actually able to build was only 50% of its original target. I think that shows the importance of not only tracking Chinese ambitions but also what China is able to deliver, and it seems what China can deliver may be only a fraction of its ambitions. Let me switch gears a bit to discuss technology. According to your book, you write that we are seeing the emergence of two separate value-based technology ecosystems, one of which is led by China and the other involves the United States and other countries. What does this mean for the United States? How should the United States be thinking about moving forward with respect to technology, trade and economic transactions with China? I mean, I think this is one of the most important issues that the U.S. and other countries as
1: well are grappling with uh, because China's engaging with China economically has been important, you know, to many economic actors in the U.S. and in other countries. And we want companies, I think, that are doing business in China and are successful to continue to be successful. Uh, Having said that, again, I think that one of the things that we saw during the pandemic, China's coercive use of the personal protective equipment meant that countries could no longer rely on China as, you know, sort of the center for the global supply chain. And so this has prompted a whole rethink in terms of, you know, trying to identify core technologies and, you know, critical minerals, whatever else it might be, where you don't want to have an over-reliance on China right? So what does that mean in terms of reorienting supply chains? Um, Doesn't mean reorienting everything away from China, but it means building up resiliency, building up redundancy. I think beyond that, of course, there's the issue of identifying, you know, those technologies that you don't want to sell to China because they will advance China's military capabilities or its ability to repress its own people. Uh, And I think you've seen the United States take a pretty proactive role uh, in trying to determine what are those technologies and trying to prevent that from happening. And I think that's a very challenging effort. You know, technologies are changing all the time. And, you know, at what point, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, these are big questions um, that the United States has to address and Germany and Japan and and other uh, countries that are technology leaders, because, of course, they affect you know companies vary directly but at the same time a country's economy you know thrives i mean there's an interrelationship i think sometimes that we fail to appreciate between the business community and the government right the us government and democratic governments have provided the institutions and the norms that have enabled the private sector in all these countries to thrive globally at the same time these governments thrive because their private sectors innovate and provide jobs and you know, contribute uh, to the overall welfare of, of the countries. And so I think that partnership and figuring out the lines, how do we continue to, to keep that partnership robust, maintain that as a robust partnership, even as we try to sort of disentangle ourselves from China in these critical ways, I think is, is a really important challenge uh, moving
0: forward. I totally agree with you about how the U.S. government works with private companies to deal with the China challenge will be critical as we move forward. My sense is that there is a lot of work that we need to do in this area, and this administration is interested in more conversations with the business community about China. From your personal perspective, what are things that you think the U.S. government should or could do to bring in the private sector, bring in the business community, think about competition with China?
1: Well, I think one of the the most important initiatives that's already underway um, is the CHIPS initiative. You know, this is really thinking about U.S. um, capacity, not only to design semiconductors, but also to manufacture them and trying to ensure that the United States, you know, is a leader across all dimensions of the semiconductor supply chain. And so that's an area where there's been, I think, an extraordinary level of U.S. government and U.S. business discussion and cooperation, you know, trying to understand, you know, where are the vulnerabilities in the supply chain and how can we best address it? You know, Congress hopefully will pass the CHIPS Act, we will get $50 billion, you know, to be spent to help build up U.S. manufacturing capacity, maybe engage private capital into that. So I think that's a really good example of, where the US business community and the US government, and frankly, also businesses, this is not even just about US companies, it also engages others like TSMC and Samsung that are you know global leaders in certain aspects of semiconductor design and manufacturing. So I think that's to me is is a model that we want to continue to foster where we have a targeted problem and we bring together sort of government, broad national security understanding together with some funding from the U.S. government and the creativity, innovation, and also funding from the private sector.
0: Thank you, Liz. Your book covered a broad range of important topics related to China's goals and trajectory, and we were only able to cover a small subset of those issues on our podcast today, and only the highlights of those issues. So for those interested in more details, please do check out Dr. Economy's recent book. In the interest of time, let me wrap up here with one final question for you. So when you look into the near future, the next one or two years, what are things that worry you the most in terms of Chinese activities or developments? Basically, what keeps you up at night as you look into China's future?
1: Sure. I I think uh, what keeps me up most at night, probably two things. One frankly, is, is not China's behavior on the global stage, but domestically, and the political repression in China. And, and that's just something, you know, from my work historically on China's environment, and being pretty deeply engaged in China's environmental and non-governmental sector, and and so when I look at how constrained now uh, political freedoms are in China, when I look at what's taking place in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghur Muslims, and, but also just with lawyers and what I, when I look and see what happened with you know, the whistleblowers during COVID that have been since been arrested, I mean, I have to say that that is, is one of my greatest concerns about the country in part because i care about those people and also because i think you know what china does at home signals what their priorities are going to be abroad you know china at home is china abroad we bring our own values and our own practices to our foreign policy so i think i care about it mostly from a domestic perspective but i am also cognizant of the fact that it really matters for the way that china behaves globally and then if i had my second second issue would probably be taiwan and i think as you know this is a big debate in our own community of China analysts and scholars over the likelihood of military action by Beijing against Taiwan. And I tend to be a little bit more worried about it than some others, uh, because I do think that it is a top priority of Xi Jinping. And I don't see that path toward peaceful unification. I haven't heard how that's going to happen from uh, any of my Chinese colleagues. (laughs) So barring that, I'm concerned about that. So those are probably the two things that keep me up most at night right now. Thanks, Bonnie. Hey, China Power listeners. I'm Mike Green, host of the Asia Chessboard podcast. And I'm inviting you to check out our conversations with the most prominent strategic thinkers on Asia as we discuss the hard calls and consequential debates that drive U.S. policy towards this critical region of the world. The Asia Chessboard explores the historical context and inside decision-making process on major geopolitical developments from the Himalayas to the South China Sea. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or at csis.org.